Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we're looking at Medicare for All, both the historical roots of the policy and the current reality of support for the idea. We'll be talking with two candidates, one past and one current, for the Democratic nomination for the U.S. House of Representatives, Wisconsin's 3rd District. Back in 2016, Myron Buckles ran for that nomination after retiring from 30 years as a high school history teacher and with extensive personal experience of our medical system. We're also joined by a current candidate for that nomination, Mark Newman, who spent decades as a pediatric doctor in Wisconsin, in Illinois, and as a Franciscan brother in Zaire, known as the Congo today, for whom Medicare for All is a principal issue of his campaign. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today. Mark Newman and Myron Buckles join us via Zoom for today's show. Mark, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action today to talk about Medicare for All. Thank you for having us here, Mark. It's a subject that I've been studying and learning about and trying to teach others about for some years now. And Myron, it's great to have you back to Spirit in Action. It's been quite a few years to bring your expertise, particularly as a historian of sorts, for Spirit in Action about Medicare for All. Well, like most Americans, I have some experience navigating our sick care system, as I like to call it, and so many people do, based on family issues and my own issues. And the history of it all is quite deep and interesting, and be happy to talk about it. Mark Newman, have you had experience being a patient yet? Fortunately, not in a hospital setting, but I have had clinic care and health maintenance care. And I have to admit that I've actually been very healthy all of my life. And so I haven't had uh, serious encounters as the patient, but certainly I have encountered many, many hundreds and thousands of people who were my patients when I was practicing as a pediatric doctor. Since you were a pediatric doctor for a lot of years, you got to see the medical system from a perspective a lot of us don't get. And you practiced for enough decades that you saw the system changing. What have you seen over the course of your professional life in terms of what the medical system's done? Health insurance and health care or sick care, as Myron said, how has that changed in your lifetime? Well, I think two things have changed. One of them is the practice of medicine has evolved quite a bit. When I was practicing, it was a very common phenomenon that the knowledge that you worked from even five years ago seemed like half of it would be outdated. So it was a continuous need of updating and learning and evolving with the system and developing new procedures. So all of that is true. I think that also contributed to the enterprise, you know, the function of providing health care has become in and of itself more expensive. That makes sense. The things that we are able to deliver are more involved. And so hopefully we have a higher quality product in the end. But parallel with that was our payment system seemed to go the other direction and becoming less and less useful, available, helpful to people as the process allowed us to commoditize these healthcare services. So when I say commoditization, I mean that they become sold like values that you can purchase in the store, like you know your potatoes or your new car. But it, the relationship of healing and being a healer and someone who is in need of healthcare services does not fit in that model at all. 
And by placing it there, we actually undermine the actual ability to do what we want to do, and that is to develop a trust relationship with our patients and then try to make available to them as much as possible the types of interventions that we can in a trusting relationship instead of one that's just a transactional one. As a doctor, Mark, you had to take the Hippocratic Oath. What do you promise to do as part of that? I think that there are four, not necessarily Hippocratic Oath, but there are four pillars that we use for determining what is correct behavior, what is ethical behavior when we're providing health care. Avoid doing bad, to always do good, to respect the autonomy of your patient and the patient's complete right to make decisions about his or her care, and then to provide equitable care to all the members of your community. So it's an issue of justice. Hmm. Does that phrase equitable care, is that a long time phrase? That sounds like a equity as a principle of justice, fairness, seems to be more common recently. Well, as long as I've ever practiced medicine, those were the pillars, those were the parameters that we would use for deciding what would be the right decisions in circumstances of, you know, an ethical decision. And those come along quite often when you're practicing. My understanding is that medicine in the United States used to be a nonprofit thing, specifically for hospitals. It was a nonprofit until in my lifetime, and that most hospitals switched over to becoming for profit. Am I getting that right, Myron? Well, most of our big hospitals still call themselves nonprofit. And with the amount of profit that they make in order to stay nonprofit, they frequently turn it back into buildings and medical equipment and salaries for the people at the top. To brush up on this, and you're, you talked to me about history, I saved a 2013 Time Magazine article that's a headline story was Bitter Pill. It was written by Stephen Brill, and it was a long-form article in Time. We spent years researching it and writing it. This is 2013. In 2013, the article said that our country is going to spend $2.8 trillion on healthcare. Well, I did a quick search, and the round number that I came up with in 2021, from a couple of major agencies that track these types of things, they had it at 4.1 trillion. So that's nine years. So you know, where does that where does that all come from? And you know, the cost of providing the services is, of course, one of the things. Well, the nonprofit, I don't know that I didn't don't see in you know the medical facilities that I've used, including my wife's terminal liver cancer. They were all nonprofits. One of my observations: I moved to Eau Claire in 1997. And only just recently are there no cranes sitting in front of any of our three large hospitals here in a city of 65,000 people. It was the growth industry through much of my 25 years here. I don't want our medical facilities to look like 1970s Soviet-era building. I get that. I understand the value of a healing garden, and I think we should have them, like patients to be able to sit in nice surroundings. But the cost of those services is just astronomical. What are we really getting for it? That's the question. I think we're getting a lot more MRIs and we're getting a lot more body parts being replaced. I guess when, you know, 50 years ago when I was a young man, they couldn't replace body parts like they do now or do heart transplants, etc. But I'm not sure if that's a big part of the cost or not. Well, there's a little bit of hypocrisy in everything. And I recognize the hypocrisy in some of the points that I make, because to answer your question, I wouldn't be able to walk. You know, what does my ability to walk without a wheelchair, you know, provide to our society, to our economy at this point, or my multiple hundred thousand dollar plus joint replacement surgeries? 
that's the question. Where's the value of the bang for the buck? Well, obviously, I'm going to argue that my being able to walk is pretty important <laughs> and, and what that costs. But then, you know, where are the costs coming from? What, what is the reason for the astronomical cost? I also have to admit that I've always been insured. I've been a public employee my entire working life, now retired. And I have never truly worried about the cost of any particular care. Unlike you, Mark, I've been in the buildings, I call them the palace. And with healthcare, I get welcomed into the palace, at least for a prescribed amount of time. Treated very well. I've never had a complaint about my healthcare. <laughs> but I've also had publicly funded insurance, a large part, 90% of it at the end of my career. And leaves me not only able to walk, but also not financially in debt or bankrupt, which I would be. That's just a given. For the surgeries that I've had, I would have had to file bankruptcy. No way around that. And Mark, you've been working inside the system as a doctor. So I think that you've had another perspective in terms of pay, in terms of what your clients, which clients got to come to you, what insurance they had to have. What have you seen over the course of your career? As we're talking about some of the advances in technology and possibility of diagnosis and intervention therapy, those are all wonderful. But if we want to place it in the context of the health of the community, we have to realize that curative interventions are not as useful or as effective as prophylactic interventions or public health interventions for changing the social determinants of health. So I did have an experience of practicing in Africa. And while people were, like all of us, ready to receive care or to you know, make a payment for care when it was curative, it was a little bit different when you said, well, why don't we put as much energy into clean water or put as much energy into the distribution of vaccines because it wasn't as immediate. So I guess what I'm trying to say, Mark, is that it's easy for us to become fascinated by the things that Myron was just talking about, you know, that help us to overcome some of these difficulties that we all experience in life. But at the same time, if you step back, you see that the overall health of a community is affected by things that are a lot less immediate, are shiny objects, but are more mundane and boring. And they don't get as much attention from a public health perspective, but they do have the greatest output in terms of the overall improved health of all the members of that community. And when you were working in pediatric medicine, does that mean you tried to push for some of those preventative? Or maybe it's that your clients didn't care to go in that direction. I don't know. How did that work? Well, in pediatrics, it's a good example. 40, 50 years ago, the common experience of ill health in pediatrics was infectious diseases. And a lot of children died not even that many decades ago from meningitis, measles, and other infectious diseases. And a lot of those have been managed now because of the availability of the immunization program that has been just a spectacular health intervention in terms of children's health. And that gets replaced these days by children feeling more anxiousness that wasn't as evident 40, 50 years ago. And so the children still need attention, but it has to be more in the developmental field and the care for psychosocial support that wasn't as immediate when we were dealing with just trying to keep the kids from getting infected and dying from an acute infection. So I don't know, I guess, where I'm going with all of that, but it's always an evolving issue. In both instances, 
our best intervention is by making a public health intervention. So in the first place, it was the introduction of, you know, the immunization programs that had been so effective and also just the level of sanitation in the world that we live in and also the improvement of automobile safety so that children are kept in seatbelts or they're kept in their infant seats and surviving crashes that they weren't in the 60s. All of those public health interventions have done very well for children. But now with the new development of children feeling more anxiousness and anxiety and uncertainty that causes them a great deal of stress, we continue to need these larger public health approaches that I'm sure Myron has his experience with the field of educating young folks to see maybe that development. And we have to make the larger interventions and not just the individual interventions, but the larger interventions to ask, why is it that our society is causing children to grow up with so much anxiety that we see today? Did we used to have people who were immunization deniers? Given that you just mentioned that that was one of the most successful things we've done. I don't know how many millions of lives we've saved in the U.S. because of vaccinations. Did we used to have deniers, people who said, no, you can't stick that thing in my arm? It's always been a question. It's always been a point of discussion from what I remember in the practice of pediatrics. But what happens is when there is a trusting relationship between the physician and the family, then we can overcome those uncertainties and fears. And that is the best approach to reassuring people that immunizations are a good intervention. And it has to be person to person. When we introduce the commercialization of our healthcare delivery, then it, re it introduces this uncertainty relationship and pushes it away from that of a trusting relationship of a physician who is believed to have a fundamental need to provide only for the care of the patient. But when that relationship gets distorted, because now it's become a process of making money of commercialized interventions, then we have lost that ability to have that trusting base for responding to these uncertainties that people have. And so I think that's why we see today that the uncertainties and, you know, the anti-vaxxers are so much more vocal than I ever had an experience of when I was practicing decades ago. I especially want to talk about what sometimes gets called Medicare for all. I guess we could also talk about single payer. We're not going to be talking today about nationalizing the healthcare industry, which is, I think, what England did, for instance. They nationalized their healthcare. I don't know that other countries, France or Canada, ever went in that direction. But maybe I'm wrong. Do you know more about that, Myron? One of the most interesting things that I found in actually looking deeper into it was that the lumber barons in Washington in the 1800s actually hired physicians to be on call for their axemen. I, I read that and I just chuckled because one of the biggest philosophical things that I have is how our businesses seem to resist and have successfully resisted Medicare for All since 1945. Harry Truman and, and Henry Wallace in 1945 and 1948 when the countries of Europe were bombed into rubble. Really terrible. I mean, to look at the leftovers of World War II is just to shake your head. They nationalized their healthcare system because it was one thing they could do because they had a lot of poor, sick people and take care of them. And how, do, how does our business community resist this when a healthy, happy workforce strikes me as being number one? And I don't know anything about running a business, supposedly. 
mean, that's what I've been told my entire teaching career. I think I do. And if I had employees, I would want them healthy and happy. And the medical community itself resisted the healthcare, the national program vehemently. And when the rest of World War II was bombed in the Stone Age, was doing it post-World War II, we resisted it. Finally, getting Medicare and Medicaid in 1965, which I always remind people that that's a leftover of the New Deal. Franklin Roosevelt is long dead, but members of Congress and people that had come to adulthood and got themselves elected post-New Deal knew the value and how difficult it was to see their elderly relatives get sick and die without being able to see a doctor. And they put Medicare in place. The sign-up was overwhelming. People just jumped on board. Similar to the Affordable Care Act, where it was bad enough so badly, like nobody's going to sign up for this. Well, it shut down the servers. If you remember, the, one of the scandals after the Affordable Care Act was passed was they didn't have a computer system ready to handle all of the signups. And the signups were difficult. And people had to log in and jump through some hoops technologically to get signed up. But it was overwhelmingly positive because there's a need. You can see that you know, throughout the history. There's a need for healthcare. Well, we're the greatest, richest country in the world. How do we not provide that? And I am in my graduation year, 64. I'm looking forward to Medicare and my premium dropping significantly. And I also make this point, people look forward to getting older exactly twice in their life, at least in the culture that I grew up in. And that was getting old enough to be able to drink and then getting to Medicare. Because <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people over in their 60s. It's like counting the days to get older. It's like that's not typical to what people in my generation do. But when they're looking at healthcare costs, why is that? So we have this entire group of people who are 65 and older that have been in that situation since 1965, celebrating Medicare, happy to have Medicare. Nobody that I know has ever turned it down. And resisting Medicare for all doesn't seem to square reality. There's some forces there that are very powerful. And what do you think about that, Mark? You know, as uh, Myron was talking about people's desire to get to the magical age of being eligible for to be a beneficiary for the Medicare program, there's an interesting phenomenon that when you compare American longevity as we get older, so this is a little bit complicated, but let's say you have a group of people that have arrived at age 50, and from that point, what is their expected longevity and compare it to other countries, you know, like in the European economic community? And you find that as these years go by, 50, 55, 60, the expected longevity for anybody that gets to that age is really low compared to the European nations, like 17th among the list of developed nations in the European West. But once you get to age 65, if you don't die before then, but now you've gotten to age 65, now your longevity starts to climb back up. And so, you know, as the years go by, you have a longer life expectancy relative to other nations. And you can interpret that phenomena to say, well, look, uh, our American availability of healthcare services is good. We just don't make it available to people. But we have this experiment where we're actually allowing people after age 65 to have a better advantage of making use of those resources in our culture and our society. So it's a strong argument for providing a single-payer system like the Medicare is instead of making people sort of die off before they get there. Just an interesting phenomenon that we can see. I would like to add to that that none of my physical ailments were necessarily associated with aging. Mine were created by my body wearing out playing really competitive sports for the first 30 years of my life. 
my joint replacement is all directly attached to that. You know, I think about that sometimes too. And so here I am, I'm fit and pretty healthy right now. The system has provided a tremendous benefit for me. But how much of it is also just mental <laughs> when you take this huge monkey off her back? I was referring to this 2013 article. Everything's gotten worse, it's more expensive. Healthcare for outcomes for people who can afford it, very good. But why is everything more and more expensive? And of course, what Mark just said, we don't spend our money on the young. We wait until we're like me and then give me a new hip. That's not necessarily a good example, I understand, because of what I said earlier about what caused my joint things. But for people who just wear out, which happens, what can we do leading up to that to keep it from wearing out? It's clear that all of the countries that provide a healthcare have what Mark just said, better outcomes, because they spend a significant proportion of their healthcare dollars on young people, offsetting the need for so much healthcare at the end of life. Today for Spirit in Action, we're talking to two people about Medicare for All, or single-payer health care, perhaps. One of them is Mark Newman, amongst other things. He's running for Congress right now for the 3rd District and House Representatives in Wisconsin. The other person we're speaking with is Myron Buckles, who, by the way, ran for that same position several years ago. And both of them have, as part of their running for Congress, have taken a good look at what works and doesn't work in our country. And so Myron, previous to that run for Congress, was actually a history teacher in high school here, is quite well studied in major issues for our country. So I'm really pleased again to have both of you here, Mark Newman and Myron Buckles. Let's shift our focus to specifically Medicare for All. You already mentioned, Mark Newman, that essentially Medicare becomes a single-payer system for people who are over 65. Also around that time, Medicaid for poor people, people who don't have the financial resources, they get some help on that end of it. We also have, I think, national health care provided for people in the military and people who've retired from the military. So we have three different forms of universal health insurance in the country for at least 50 plus years now. Anybody care to talk about that drift, where it's gone? Has that been increasing, decreasing? Is Medicare still solid? Medicaid, what's happened with that? And the health care that we give to our veterans and the people in the military. Is that fairly called universal health care? When you refer to the VA system, that really is nationalized health, like the British system. Our government owns the buildings, hires the healthcare providers, and distributes the care to those in need who are eligible. And it's spread throughout the whole country. So that's a system that's reflective of the same thing that the National Health Plan of England and Great Britain does. And as Myron said, it was built in the ashes of World War II and a different historical place to start from. For us in the United States, we've gotten here by a different route. And over the course of 50 to 80 years, we've seen more and more engagement by private health insurance so that the Blues, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, during World War II in the 40s, they were nonprofit entities and they used community rates, sharing the, the risk across a whole population. But as time went on, they began to realize, well, we can make more profits here if we target our population, break it up, you know, lemon dropping and cherry picking. So get the healthy people and don't take care of the more expensive, unhealthy ones. And so there's just this whole motive to make profit, make profit, make profit. 
And it's continued to evolve or devolve to what we have today. We've made interventions where we've tried to counteract it, but we always end up sort of compromising with these for-profit entities. And we say, well, the system's broken, but it's not broken. It is just doing what it's supposed to do, what it's meant to do, and that is to make profit for portfolios on Wall Street and not specifically be oriented towards the equitable distribution of healthcare to all citizens or all residents of the United States. Because that's the case, the real solution is let's just get rid of them. Let's get rid of the for-profit health insurance providers because they are taking advantage of our need to care for one another when we're ill or injured. It's obvious. We human beings have a need to care for each other when we're sick or injured. If you are selling insurance, you can sort of shoehorn yourself into that relationship. And your intention is, you know, we can make profits and bring them to Wall Street. And you're making use of the circumstances. And now we know that we don't have to do it that way. We have an example of a system. Well, we have two examples. One of them is the nationalized health insurance that you alluded to, the VA system. But we also have the evidence from the Medicare program that a federally funded single-payer health insurance program is providing good care to all members of the United States who are eligible, those older than 65. Even there, though, the private health insurance keeps horning itself in, you know, because now we do Medicare Part C, which is, you know, Medicare Advantage. And there's even strong evidence that we're moving in the direction of privatizing our traditional Medicare because this desire to make profits out of our need to be cared for and to care for each other just keeps weaseling itself in. The Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, That was an example of trying to expand the availability of insurance to more and more people. You know, we did improve the expansion, but we're still left with 10% of the people who have no insurance. And that was a compromise with these health insurance providers. One of the things that it did is it certainly augmented the cost of healthcare delivery to our country, not because we're delivering more care, but because we're having more money taken out of it because it's going for profits. Over and over again, you see how the health insurance providers, for-profit, private providers, are just handicapping our ability to do what we want to do, and that's to provide quality care for everyone when we need it without the hassle. So my solution is, let's get rid of the for-profit health insurance entities. They're just gumming up the system, and they're not helping. But they are very, very potent arbiters of their own position and have loud, loud megaphones when it comes to marketing. And they confuse people by saying, you can't pay for it. It's going to be too much. It's going to be worse. The government can't run anything. You know, why would you want to trust the government to do something like, you know, you need private insurance because people who run businesses, they know how to do these things. And so they always gum up the conversation. So it's hard for us as Americans to see clearly how we can get to where we want to get to. But I think that the pandemic has caused a lot of people to recognize that it is possible for our federal government to make good interventions for the health of all of us. People are, when I talk to them, are way more inclined to be interested in the possibility of a single-payer system than they were in the years past when I've been talking to folks. It's really important to emphasize the difference between a single-payer system, Medicare for All, 
and nationalizing the system. Again, nationalized health is what we have for the veterans. The government is the employer, but as we're talking about with Medicare, you go to whichever doctor you go to, that choice and that control is still up to you. So you get to make your own decisions in that way. Medicare obviously has some limitations on what they will and won't pay for. Because if I want my tattoos paid for as a medical cost, does involve some health, I guess, maybe. That is not something covered by Medicare, or at least I don't think it is. So could either one of you, either Mark Newman or Myron Buckholz, could you talk about the difference between nationalized and single payer? I would weigh in on this because tough to admit ignorance, but I was pretty ignorant about Medicare until I'm getting close. And now I'm talking to my friends who already have it, and they're telling me about Medicare Part C. And it's basically private insurance. And I said, what? I'm looking forward to get on Medicare. And so I just typed in Medicare Part C. And the first thing that popped up on my screen was, helpful licensed sales agents are here to help you get started on finding your plan today. That's the first thing that popped up. You know, we have this lobbying issue. And I've become more aware of it that the big insurance companies and hospitals spend more over the course of years than the Defense Department on lobbying Congress. And these things fly under the radar because like me, what am I thinking about Medicare? I don't need to think about Medicare. So these things you know, are not well publicized and I was looking at it and now I'm here and thinking, well, when did this happen? Over the past decade, You know, the attack has been relentless because it's a cash cow. And following that up, the argument was raging during the Affordable Care Act and it has been around I understand pretty much since post-World War II, hospitals have to be able to charge what they can. And then with the advent of Medicare in 1965, arguing that they won't get paid enough. They don't get paid enough for Medicare patients. Then to find out examples, and you see it on billboards sometimes, hospitals advertising that they take Medicare. Why are hospitals advertising that they take Medicare if they don't make enough money on Medicare to run their facility? Something doesn't fit. You know, Medicare has some ability to control prices. That's the, basically what I understand is the only thing that's really left. Yet when the Part D was passed, the rule was in place that they cannot negotiate for prices. And we've been hearing a lot more about that recently as people start to figure some of these things out. Why can't Medicare negotiate? Why can't our government negotiate and say, we know what this drug costs to make. Here's a reasonable profit, which Medicare was set up to do. You know, they'll take care of all of the buildings and all the expenses and all the salaries and the care of the patient, and you get that. And that should be enough. It's not because it's for-profit healthcare. And I don't know what the top is. You know, how much is enough has been a question in this country forever. And we've never arrived at a conclusion because sky's the limit. Get what you can. Just like the raising of the price of insulin, what a 600% raise, you know, I bought the patent, I've got control of it, now I can jack up the price whatever I want. And besides that, the government's not allowed to bargain with me about, over this kind of thing. That was one very clear, I think for most of us, offensive example of how private medicine has been trying to rip us off. My son was diagnosed as type 1 diabetic insulin dependent in 1991. You know, we had private insurance that covered it. Again, without it, with the salaries that my late wife and I made, avoiding bankruptcy would have been hard if we had to fund type 1 diabetes out of our own pocket. It just makes me shudder when I think about it. Now, I just did recently read that California has passed legislation to start making their own insulin because it's not 
quote, rocket science, as, you know, as it sounds like, you can make insulin and it's not that expensive what's being charged for it. And I, I've lost track of it a little bit because my son is now 35, you know, he's on Medicaid and uh, social security disability that so far so good covers it. But if it stops, life expectancy drops immediately. It just, like you said, insulin is just one example of hundreds of them. I'm just listening to what Myron's saying, and it's absolutely true that the sky's the limit when it comes to pharmaceuticals. There's no competition. You know, there's no market there. You know, one company does one thing, another company does a different product because they extend their patents and they sort of protect their merchandise from any competition. And so what becomes the price that can be affixed to the sale of whatever they're producing? Well, as much as they can get until people just can't give anymore and then their sales drop off. So it's, it's, an, it's a peak of maximizing that profit. It's just extraordinary. Whereas another Fortune 500 company might have you know, a normal profit of 4 or 5% from its operations annually. The pharmaceuticals end up at like 20% profits, which is just bizarre that they're able to get away with this. And as Myron pointed out, well, part of it was you know, the lobbying power so when Medicare was developing its pharmaceutical support legislation, what we call Medicare Part D, a big push was that we're going to let this go through, but the only way we're going to allow you to go through with this, you know, me, meaning the lobbyist, is if you stipulate that the government has to pay the price that the pharmaceuticals companies place on their products without the ability to negotiate them down. It was just an extraordinary piece of limitation. And now, years and years and years go by talking about what well, we're going to change that, and we never do. There's legislation in the Congress right now. Why not just stop it, you know, make it possible to negotiate it? There's too much uh, political control by the powerful companies that buy campaigns, I guess, pay for campaigns of the uh, people who get elected. I have a question for you, Mark. Yeah. And I have read and actually seen personally and heard from my daughter, who's a physician assistant, the best dressed people in the waiting room are the pharmaceutical reps. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. But in your line of work as a pediatrician, maybe not. I've seen it. I had the good fortune of visiting my daughter's clinic, finding out that she doesn't have to pack a lunch because basically Monday through Friday, the buffet is laid out by the various drug company representative that visits that day. And she had a two-sided view of this. One, she knows why it's profit and they have so much. I ate really well because <laughs> I was visiting. <laughs> On the other hand, she said, I do get good information from them, you know, about new treatments that are coming down the pipe and so on. So just ask you to talk about that a little bit. Well, I worked most recently from 2010 and on. And well, even before that, it was with the universities that I was at Gunderson. And we were very strict about the presence of the pharmacological company reps. They weren't allowed to provide any pizzas or any meals. It was really, really strict. I guess I am a little bit uncertain about the quality of the information. Sure, they, they have really nice, slick presentations, but then I'm not sure that when you compare it to the whole gamut of medical information that's being published and that we have to be continuously learning about that what comes from, you know, you have to automatically be suspicious that there's mixed incentives in the information. So I couldn't even pick up a pen from a pharmaceutical rep when I was working at Gunderson. They just said, no, you can't uh, give any indication that you're allowing yourself to be influenced by their advertising. 
Folks, today for Spirit in Action, we're talking to two people about Medicare for All, important health care advances for our country are perhaps best guaranteed to us by having a good financial system to deal with medicine. Spirit in Action is a Northern Spirit Radio production. Our website, northernspiritradio.org, with 17 years of our guests, so you can contact them. If you want to contact, for instance, Mark Newman, who's here with us today, I will include his website, Running for Congress, where Medicare for All is primary issue for him. Mark Newman for Congress.com. That link is on our website. And we'll also have his email. You can just contact him directly. Don't even have to look at that website. Our other guest today is Myron Buckles, and maybe he'll let me put some kind of link on my website to him. He's pretty happily changing the world in many ways in his retirement from teaching for 30 some years history in our schools. Remember to come by NorthernSpiritRadio.org to post comments on this program, to look up connections to today's guests and all the other guests from our past years, and to support us if you care to. Your donations make it possible for us to continue because we do not get money from corporations or the government. Part of the point is we want to serve our listeners. You can't have divided loyalties that way. So we depend upon you, the listeners, to make sure that we can bring you the best information possible, untainted by other motives. So again, NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Remember also to support the local community radio stations wherever you are. There's some 45 stations nationwide carrying our programs. They deserve your help because they, again, are not depending on corporations government. They're depending on you, the listeners. So with your hand, with your wallet, make sure they exist so you get a local view and one that serves the people as opposed to serves the profits. Again, Mark Newman's here. He was just speaking uh, about his experience in pediatric medicine. And Myron, besides being historian, has been patched together by the medical system a lot of times. It's worked well for him. But one of the things that's happened is our country used to have a pretty good employer insurance, medical insurance. Employees, once they were with a company, could get decent health insurance through the company. Of course, I don't even know why we need to have insurance. Insurance does not actually provide health care at all. It takes a slice of profit, maybe 10% typically or more these days. They take a slice of your medical dollar just to do some bargaining as I see it. Okay, now that that's my characterization of it. Either Mark or Myron, do you care to comment on what actually the function of health insurance is? Before we get onto that topic, there's an experience that I had that follows up a little bit of the history that I'm supposed to bring to this program. And Otto von Bismarck, the namesake of the capital of North Dakota in the 1840s, the Germans had in place a single-payer system from the 1840s. So out of the ashes of World War II, they didn't have to recreate that. They already had it. The more current observation based on that piece of history was, as a public school teacher, school teacher in general, you see foreign exchange students. And during the if your listeners remember the uproar over the Affordable Care Act, I happened to have a German foreign exchange student in my class. I taught predominantly sophomores. And he gave a little presentation and stood in front of my class and said pretty accurately, I can't believe you Americans are so upset about health care. My dad pays a little more in taxes, but we just don't have the concerns that you do. And 
like any classroom had a diversity of students and, you know, politically as well as other things. And the classroom went quiet. Nobody had anything to say to that because the Germans have it and they deal with the situation as so many countries do. Bulgaria has it. want to strive to be Bulgaria. You know, we've turned it over to this private insurance, which then comes back to that topic. It's for profit. You have to make a profit to keep the lights on. I understand that about business. How does that equate to healthcare? And every dollar spent on keeping the lights on an insurance company and paying salaries is a dollar that cannot be spent on a healthy outcome for a patient. And I alluded to earlier, I don't understand why a healthy, happy workforce is not number one on our agenda. I think something that's really helpful when considering what is the function of our health insurance providers is what is our overall attitude towards the care of health of our community. So if we look at it from a communal perspective, the health insurance providers become completely meaningless. Say they're just gumming up the system, giving us more paperwork to do and causing us to have a more balkanized healthcare delivery system because everybody's pulling in its own direction. But if you look at healthcare, as Myron pointed out to in the beginning, as sick care, meaning there is no communal approach to the delivery of healthcare, it's only when, God forbid, you have some unexpected infection or injury, and so now you're going to purchase a health insurance plan to help you through that episode. But that's the big dichotomy. You know, are we going to look at it? Our healthcare delivery as individualized, me, myself, and I, I need the care, and doesn't matter what anybody else does, it's just my need. Or are we going to look at the reality that we as human beings are healthier when we live in a healthy community? And so we want to raise the level of health status for the whole community. And therefore, there's no need, there's no benefit from balkanizing the system with a bunch of healthcare insurance providers. When I was preparing for this program, already having spoken with Mark Newman, I had the suggestion that maybe I should get someone involved with hospitals, with medical system, someone who actually is dealing with the other side and maybe a perspective that would be on the other side from Medicare for all. I did contact one hospital, one medical system, and they declined to be part of it. And I don't want to railroad this issue. I want our country to make the best decision it can be. The reason we don't have someone here talking on the other side is it's pretty easy to expose the fallacies. When the Affordable Care Act was being considered, there was a smear campaign to say how bad single-payer health care is, like what they have in Canada. Talk about long wait times, which can happen. They talked about death panels, which is a totally bogus argument as far as I'm concerned, because actually all the health insurance companies have their own death panels, what they will and won't pay for. So my perspective was, let's get the best information we can. The important question I want to ask is, the smear campaign, was it just smear campaign or was it factual? England does have problems. They have national health care providing all the services they want to everyone. And yet they have, I think, better outcomes than we do. Anybody want to jump in on that one? How much was it a smear campaign and was how much of it's factual? Well, I have a firsthand experience with Canadian health care from a retired Mountie who I was traveling with who said that everybody in Canada knows somebody, anecdotal stories, knows somebody who vacationed in the States, broke their leg water skiing in Florida, and came home with a $20,000 vacation bill. 
nobody touches the 49th parallel with a big toe without buying supplemental insurance. The wait times are frequently for things like I could wait for, you know, a hip, a knee. And I don't live in the Yukon Territory, which is also part of that whole story. You know, the, the reality is what I heard, and I've heard from people in other countries, nobody likes their healthcare system, but nobody would trade for hours. <laughs> there's, there's problems everywhere. It's not, it, and it's, it's the perfect argument. There's so much of that that I come back to the perfect argument. Oh, when the detractors find one example, they never quit, never quit. Conservatives have hated Medicare since 1965. Social Security since 1936. They just keep banging on that same thing and will bring up one example. We heard about this person in Canada. As far as the death panel is concerned, death panel is when you meet with your insurance company and your wife is in final stages of liver cancer and has been approved for a transplant. This happened to me. My wife, my late wife, was debating whether or not to go through with the procedure because the expense. And we had insurance, but one of our insurance companies was balking like crazy. And we didn't think that was going to be the case. During our meetings at the major medical facility that we were sent to, we met with the financial officers before we met with a lot of physicians. The memory I have of that is being told that, oh, you're in good shape because the insurance company that had been balking didn't. So we looked at each other and went, oh, we're not going to be bankrupt. Let's go through the procedure. The cost of going to the hospital is prohibitive, and people know that and frequently choose not to. And one of the reasons our outcomes are so poor is because people put off care because they don't want to pay that bill or they don't have insurance at all. And if they do have insurance, does it really do what you would like insurance to do? And that's in the first half of my adult life, everything. I never worried about a healthcare cost. I just got out my Blue Cross Blue Shield card. And that was it. And so, you know, we've evolved, devolved, as Mark said, into the system where the for-profit entities and the insurance companies are the death penalty. You don't get service if you don't satisfy them. And lastly, I'll say this. There's a major medical provider that I have been privy to. And on the wall, they have a giant sign that says, the needs of the patient come first when you first walk in the door. And I began walking past that sign and saying out loud, the needs of the business office come first. And that's the bottom line. If you make it, you're good. If you don't, there's your death panel. I'm curious. I haven't actually checked this out to be sure. Is there another developed country of the world that has the kind of health insurance situation we have in the United States? I think that basically every, what we call developed nations, those with the higher GDPs, better standard of life, they all have single payer or nationalized health. Did I get that wrong? Let's take an example of Switzerland. And there's a, a lot of different insurance providers there. I don't know if it's a lot, but there are many. And individuals can contract with one or the other, but they're acting like utilities and are highly regulated. In that case, they're compelled to provide the service and not to use the opportunity to just pull profits out. The cost of healthcare per capita in Switzerland is higher than other countries, like, for example, Great Britain, but, and it's not as high as the United States. It's not across the board alternatives, but there's even in Germany or in France, there are sometimes more of a hybrid combination of private actors and public actors, but the private actors get much more regulation from the government 
and not just the free-for-all to take opportunity, like, for example, our pharmaceuticals, that we're going to get as much money as we can out of the sale of our products. But in another country, they would be told, no, for the necessary drugs and necessary pharmaceuticals that we need that are on the formulary, you are going to give a reasonable price are things like what Myron just said California is doing. We'll just make it ourselves. And so you won't even have a market anymore. Are there any other countries that are as expensive as what we have in the United States? No, uh, the United States is way more expensive than other countries per person. Does that mean that doctors in these other countries get paid less than doctors in the United States? Is this, are the doctors the ones siphoning off the money? No, I don't think that's true. When you ask which way are physicians going over the border between the United States and Canada, they're going to Canada, you know, number-wise. It's because there's a lot of things that are more important in your profession than the paycheck. And if you spend your time struggling with all of the imposition of the payment system that we have in the United States that interferes with your relationship with your patients, that causes the physicians and the other care providers, nurses and therapists to continuously struggle with a moral quandary of who am I working for? Am I just a cog in this machine or am I really able to care for the people that come and are in need of services? So Byron's experience that he alluded to of having good service in the hospital is just a a great accolade for the intention of our therapists and care providers. But they're struggling within a system that doesn't appreciate, but takes advantage of their good intentions to provide good care. Whereas if you go to a single-payer system like the Canadians have, now you don't have to be struggling with calling and getting approvals and referrals and all of this stuff. You can just recognize that your patient is your primary concern and the payment will come in the background, so it's going to be fine. Well, I remember Michael Moore movie Sicko. He was interviewing a physician in England who was happy to show him his beautiful apartment and his two cars and said, I'm, I'm not badly paid. I'm well paid. We can do that. We can pay our physicians. We're the richest country in the world. And by the way, it's also well recognized that it used to be that, oh, physicians, they don't like single pair, but that has changed. There is a majority of physicians and care providers who are on board for single payer, recognizing that the confusion of the system they're forced to operate under is so detrimental to their profession. And, you know, they're just struggling to stay on and wouldn't recommend to their children to follow in their steps. I think we're getting near the end of the time we can spend online here. I'm wondering, Mark, uh, if there's one last question you can answer for me. Again, you're running for the third district here in Wisconsin, be our representative in the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. And I believe there are several main candidates running for office. I understand that you're the only one who's championing particularly Medicare for all or single payer. Is that true, number one? And number two, why? Again, this is something that is very widely known and recognized as beneficial to the well-being of people in the United States. You know, I don't know why. It is true that three other candidates that are in the same electoral campaign election that I'm in have not advocated for a single-payer healthcare system. As I was mentioning earlier, that I'm finding that more and more people on the street, ordinary folks that I get a chance to talk to when you're in a campaign, are seeing just point blank. It's like, duh, of course we need a single-payer system. Other countries do it. Why can't we? 
And I haven't encountered that attitude so frequently in the past. So it seems like our electorate, our general population is moving in a direction that makes a lot of sense for me for um, if you're a candidate to get on board with that idea. The only thing I can suspect is that it's being treated like a third rail because of all the allusion we've made to the powerful corporation interests that don't want us to be able to move in that direction because it would exclude them. You know, pharmaceuticals would then not be able to make their 20% profit margin. The multitude of private insurance entities would no longer have a role to play in a public health insurance program. And that's a powerful force. And I don't know. I guess the campaigners work uh, from consultants and consultants are from suspicious would be saying, don't go there. You'll regret it later or something. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I would add this. Uh, in 2016, when I ran, the two things that people wanted to talk about the most were money and politics and healthcare. Mm-hmm. So it does my heart good to know that you're hearing that too. As a final note for me, it's not communism. And the threat of communism beat our single-payer attempt in post-World War II. It was a major driving force. And I remember the Affordable Care Act arguments in 2010. You know, if it was death panels, it was communism. It's not. Well, I want to thank you, Myron Buckles, for joining us today for Spirit in Action, both because of your decades of working with our high schoolers, teaching them history, giving them broader perspective, and I think teaching them to think critically, which is so important, and for sharing your stories here today for Spirit in Action. You're welcome, Mark. I always enjoy being on your show. You're a great interviewer. And Mark Newman, again, taking your time out, I know that the primary election is coming up very soon for you to take the time to be with us here today about this issue, which is truly momentous for our nation. Uh, I'm really glad you're championing it and that you've taken the time to talk about it. Whether you do or do not get the nomination, I do hope that your work moves forward the bar just a little bit at least to get us towards a sane medical and health policy in this country. Thank you so much. I'm right on that page with you, too. It's just a continuous work, and I'll I'll keep at it as long as I got the energy and the ability to do it. And folks, I'll have links to Mark Newman, marknewmanforcongress.com, his email. I'll have them both on my website if you want to continue this discussion with him. But anyway, if you come to nordenspiritradio.org, you'll find that link and other resources. And thanks so much for joining us today for Spirit in Action. We'll see you next week. All right. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Our lives will feel the echo of our healing.